Well, good morning. Welcome to our, uh, our normal church time. So, uh, it's, good to be, it's good to be with you this morning. We are glad that you are, uh, that you are here, whether you are in the room uh, with us, if you're online with us, we welcome you. Um, today, we will, be, we will still be in the book of Acts, not for much longer. I mean, we are, we are approaching the end, uh, the end of this writing but uh, we're, in a pretty, we're in a pretty interesting section of the Acts story as we uh, watch the life of Paul and his time kind of uh, basically in captivity. He's, he is right now, uh, he, is, he is, uh, has been arrested in Jerusalem, uh, and he's now kind of uh, facing a quasi-trial. It's not a real trial, and we'll kind of see some of that play out today. Um, but he's definitely in the midst of some hardship. So we're going to kind of walk through some more of this this morning. We'll be, uh, we'll be in Acts chapter 22. We'll make our way into Acts 23 as well, uh, if you want to open up your Bibles to get there with us this morning. Um, we, are, we are in some interesting times and have been for, uh, for the majority of the year 2020. And as we kind of think through how life has changed and, and uh, evolved over these last, uh, last few months, there are some elements that I think that um, we as people, are, we really struggle with. Um, companies right now are struggling, not just financially, but also struggling with what, uh, what tomorrow is going to look like. What is the new normal going to look like in corporate world? Um, I don't know if you follow uh, tech companies very often. I don't, uh, but occasionally on the news app on my phone, something will pop up. And w one thing that showed up this week was that on Monday, Twitter announced that they are no longer going to require their employees to come back to the office. Twitter employees, if they have the ability to, from now on, can just decide to work from home indefinitely. If you don't know what Twitter is, it's a uh, it's a mobile app, online platform, in which you basically just share content in, in a very limited amount of characters. I'm not a big uh, Twitter user. What is it, like 180 characters? Anybody? What? I heard it. 120? That's it? Well, there's no way. I, that's why I'm not on Twitter. Putting anything in 120 characters, that's impossible for me. Um, but, uh, but you're limited, right? It's, it's, it's this, but the reason Twitter was successful is because you could kind of just voice an opinion really quick, get it out there, and then other people could consume it and retweet it and share it, all that kind of stuff. But um, as an online company, the majority of their work is done online. It's, it's easy for a t digital company to just remain digital. You don't need to come to the office. You can do everything that you were doing in the office at an office computer. Um, you can now do at home on your home computer. This is becoming a real deal. And since that's now the case, there are millions of square feet of, um, of office space in our country that probably at the end of this year will be vacated. Companies will no longer use it. And so if you're the owner of these office buildings, you're on edge because a lot of your tenants are about to leave and may never come back because life has moved into this new remote world. We can now do everything remotely. I wonder, I wonder what it would be like if Paul, the greatest evangelist of all time, had access to the technology that you and I now have. I wonder how different 
the Christian movement would look had Paul been living his missionary journeys out throughout the 20th century? What would he have done differently? It's just a fun question to ponder. What would, what would look different? I wonder if he would have made, chosen to go to all of the places that he went to physically, or if he would have sat in a home office and launched a digital platform to spread the gospel message. I wonder what it would have looked like. I wonder what it would have sounded like. Now, granted, Paul didn't have this luxury. But one thing that I have learned of Paul over these last few weeks is he is extremely savvy. He's extremely resourceful. And in these texts ahead, you're going to get a really good glimpse at his resourcefulness. You're going to see how smart and savvy Paul was. But this morning, I want to challenge you. Before we even get into the context of our text, how do you live your life even in the new normal? How are you living your life in this kind of bizarre season of pandemic that we are in? Are you using this opportunity as an excuse to lay low, to not do anything for the kingdom? Or have you looked, taken the opportunity to move into a digital element, or if you're not computer savvy, the phone still works. Don't know if you knew that or not. Phone calls are still a real thing. And maybe you're just scared of all technological advances from the last 120 years. And you know what else is still an option? Believe it or not, the United States Postal Service. Not sure for how much longer, but as of today, they're still in operation. You can actually send a real letter to people. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up today is because if you look around the room, not everybody is here. And if I'm honest, we really don't want everybody here. I like my room to breathe my own air, not yours. Thank you. I also recognize that there are people who have legitimate concerns and fears that they confront in this season. It hurts my heart to see people online express how, how hateful others can be because some people choose to take precautions during this time. It hurts my heart to know that even in this church, people have been judged and condemned for wearing a mask while in service. I hope that we can do better than that. I hope that we can be a people who can look beyond the social media rhetoric of falsehoods and hate or realities or, un, or untruths and see the reality of who we are as Christians. We as Jesus followers should be the absolute most hospitable people on the face of the planet. Pandemic or not. We should be a people who recognizes that we as humanity have a series of problems. Before the pandemic came, we, we were a society that was dealing with an opioid epidemic that was beyond known understanding. What's crazy is, as a person who follows this kind of stuff, I, I spent a year in street ministry and I've always been fascinated with, with how uh, drug use in our country goes through these waves. And what's, what is crazy is the opioid epidemic has yet to heat, it hit its peak, even as we sit here today. 
Opioid users, users continue to climb, and it's even expounded upon because right now we have people who have nothing else to do with their time but sit at home. There's another pandemic in our country, depression and anxiety. A multi-billion dollar medical industry that has been expounded upon because right now in society, people have nothing else to do but sit at home. And for some people, sitting at home with nothing but their own thoughts is a dangerous place to be. Yet I wonder, how hospitable has the church been to these groups? We've been so concerned about this pandemic the reality of or the lack thereof that I feel like we've done a poor job of confronting the reality that society is currently within. Isolation. It's a problem that humanity has dealt with for thousands and thousands of years. People who feel alone. People who feel like they're not cared for, that no one could love them, that nobody could truly understand the tr struggles and challenges that they're up against. They're wondering if anybody cares. They're wondering if anybody can even see them or recognize them. As if all of this weren't enough, we collectively live in a country that is still currently reeling with injustice, with 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 the lack of racial understanding, and with tensions at an all-time high. Yet, I wonder how the church is being hospitable to these groups. Nothing I'm saying this morning is to start new fires or new controversies. It's all to just bring attention to what already exists. And this morning, we're going to look at a scenario in, in the book of Acts chapter 22, in which controversy is the center of everything that Paul is going to go, th go through. And while Paul is the one who is being accused, while Paul is the one who is being threatened to be flogged, while Paul is the one who is in chains by hand and feet, it's Paul who, by my, in my account, is the most hospitable of the entire story. The one who should be shown mercy the one who should be shown grace, the one who should be given the opportunity for understanding is the one who has to set all of that aside so that he can be hospitable to the gospel message. As backwards as it sounds, it is the reality of the text. As backwards as it sounds, I can make a really good argument that it is the reality of our country. That those the church should be opening up its arms to are the ones who are having to make accommodations for us. That shouldn't be. That's not the way that we should be responding in these times of trouble. It's not the way that we should be responding to the brokenness that is around us everywhere. Whether it is a COVID-19 pandemic or racial concerns and challenges, the op opioid epidemic, depression and anxiety, and everything that is in between. We, at our fingertips, in your pockets this morning, have the ability to speak words that are love-centered, grace-filled, and mercy-driven. 
That is who we are. Not a people who will, dis- who will disguise a loving rhetoric or, or a hate rhetoric with love, but a people who speak a loving rhetoric because we were first loved. We were loved first. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not ourselves. You see, we will be pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. This verse has been speaking to me all week. This reality that within me is the light of Jesus Christ. And it's my responsibility to be the one who carries that light to a broken and dark world. But not by my own power, because in doing so I would fail and I would fall. But by the power that is found within me, because of the victory that we know in Jesus Christ. Paul penned these words in 2 Corinthians around the time that he gets released from the trials that he will be, with, that he will be uh, within here in a moment. He's coming out of a season of opposition and oppression. And some of the first words that he writes are these, that he has been in trouble, that he has been troubled but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, hunted down but never abandoned by God, that he has been knocked down but he was never destroyed. Why? Because through it all, someone stood by his side. And his name is Jesus. And this morning, before we approach the text of Paul's life, I hope that I could communicate this one important thing to you. We could be a people of love and grace and mercy in the face of denial and hatred and uncertainty, not because of who we are, but because of who stands with us. And his name is Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 22, verse 24. That's where we're going to pick up the text. As we look to this point, as we look to this text, a couple of things that I want to make you uh, aware of is that you're going to be watching um, a, a, a conversation seeking understanding. You see, there's this character that, while Paul is the main character of the text, that he's not the one that's seeking understanding. In fact, it's the Roman commander who currently has him under arrest that is seeking understanding. Now, uh, now Lysesis is this commander, this Roman commander. We know his name. Uh, it hasn't been mentioned yet, but he will write a letter uh, in Acts 23, 26, and that's where his name will be mentioned. And this commander is basically overseeing Jerusalem at the time. He's a Roman commander who's overseeing the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. And so we saw in Acts 21 into 22 that Paul gets arrested while in the synagogue while overseeing a Jewish rite of, uh, of ritual. That, of, of that's what he's there to do. And he gets arrested by, um, not really arrested, but he kind of gets caught up in this riot and this mob of Jews and they're about to kill him. 
until the Romans show up. And whenever the Romans show up, the Jews disperse because they don't want to be in trouble for causing a riot in the city. But they arrest Paul for instigating a riot that he actually did not instigate. Right? So that's the position that he is now in. And he's already given speech number one in defense. As he's going into the barracks, he talks to the Roman officer and and asks for permission to address the crowd. The officer allows him to. And instead of defending himself, Paul actually gives a a gospel-centered sermon to the crowd who was just moments ago was just beating him to death. And he's, he's preaching to them and he's speaking to them and he's teaching them of life change. He's basically sharing his own testimony of the road to Damascus and the life change that he experienced on that road. And he's sharing this gospel message until he makes the, uh, the reference to one word. Anybody remember what that uh, word was? He references the? Oh, come on, church. Y'all got to take better notes. The Gentiles. Right? So he's basically saying, God sent me to serve the Gentiles. And as soon as he says the word Gentile, the mob erupts again. And they, uh, they quickly usher him into the barracks and they say, yeah, you're done speaking. Right? And the reason why that, that word caused eruption was that was, the, that was the theological breakdown. Paul was bringing religion to the dirty people, to the Gentile people, and the Jews hated him for it. They hated him for it. And so, um, so Lysesis is, is, is attempting to gain understanding of what, what the Jews are actually upset about. Because he's not Jewish. He really doesn't understand why everybody is mad. He doesn't know what's going on. And so he actually asks the crowd in chapter, or, uh, the beginning of chapter 20, uh, 22. And the crowd is in disagreement as to what their problem is. And so he decides he's going to have to figure out the problem on his own. And so that's really what he uh, is going to try to do. Now, I... Because I'm, because I'm a preacher, I'm always trying to make connections um, for you guys. I mean, some of it's for myself, but it's also to help do my job better. And so I, I, I want to look at the life of Lysesis and say, okay, why is he interested in this fact? Why is he trying to gain this understanding? Why does he want to know uh, what's going on between Paul and the Jews? And while I can't prove it, um, I think I can make this argument. I look to him, and I see him... As the, as the worldly representative. The representative of the outsider looking in. The one who doesn't have a foundation of faith or a knowledge or an understanding of everything that's going on around them. So for you and I, I see Lysesis as the guy who, who, uh, who is interested in your life and interested in your faith, but has no clue why you do anything that you do. Okay, And then I want you to imagine that Lysesis shows up one day to your house and asks you this question. Why do you do the things that you do? Why are, if you're an office fan, you may ask it this way. Why are you the way that you are? Right, Michael Scott fans? Why are you the way that you are? What makes you who you are. That's the questions that I see Lysis is asking. Why are you the way that you are? Why is this riot happening? Why did you come? What is going on? And the people, the people haven't given me any answer. So I'm going to look to you, Paul, to give me understanding. But his approach is interesting. Lysis has decided that he is going to beat the reasoning out of Paul. So verse 24, chapter 22. 
The commander brought Paul inside and ordered him lashed with whips to make him confess to his crime. He wanted to find out why the crowd had become so furious. When they tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, Is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't ever been tried? When the officer heard this, he went to his commander and asked, What are you doing? This man is a Roman citizen. So the commander went over and asked Paul, Tell me, are you really a Roman citizen? Yes, I certainly am, Paul replied. Well, I am too, the commander muttered, and it cost me plenty. But Paul answered, but I am a citizen by birth. The soldiers who were about to interrogate Paul quickly withdrew when when they heard he was a Roman citizen. And the commander was frightened because he had ordered him bound and whipped. Okay, so Lysesis is looking for understanding. He's looking for the, the reasoning behind the crime. He wants to know what's going on. And the crowd can't give it to him, so he's just going to beat a confession out of Paul. That's his, that's his, I mean, to me, it's a pretty dramatic step, right? You go, from a, you go from a crowd who can't even make up their mind as to what they're upset about straight to, well, let's just whip the guy, right? I mean, it's just like night and day difference for me. But that's the way that it's going to go until... Paul exposes that he's a Roman citizen. And the reason why that is important is because Roman citizens in Rome, just like Americans in America, have rights. And one of the rights was due process. One of the rights was you could not be punished by the Roman government without a reason, a cause to be punished. Looking up some interesting Roman laws, had the centurions whipped Paul without a trial as a Roman citizen, it would be them who would receive the death penalty, not Paul. The consequences were that severe. That's why when the commander finds out that Paul's a Roman citizen, Luke, or Luke tells us in his writing, he becomes fearful because he's the one that ordered Paul be bound up. Now, later on, we're not going to get there today, but next week, you'll see how Lysesis will spin the story so it sounds better on his part. Um, he's, he's, he's pretty savvy himself as well. But notice, Paul takes advantage of an opportunity. Paul asks, wait a second, is it actually legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't even had a trial? Now, the question doesn't need an answer. Paul knows the answer which is why Paul asked the question. He knows that if I pose this question before you, then you're not going to be able to beat me. Therefore, I don't have to admit to anything. Number one, I haven't done anything wrong. But as a Roman citizen, I don't have to admit to anything because I have not yet gone to trial. And so what I want you to see out of this text is being a citizen to a kingdom has its benefits. And Paul sets up this really nice little Jesus moment right in the middle of this interrogation and whipping. He recognizes, as a citizen of Rome, I have rights. He doesn't know this next part, but man, does it open up a really interesting storyline. Because the commander looks to Paul And says, I too am a citizen, and it cost me plenty. 
Now, what theologians and historians believe is happening here is this commander is not a Roman by birth. He's not a Roman by right. He's a Roman by bribe. He's paid his way into the army. He's bought his position. He's paid to become someone that he really doesn't deserve to be. But Paul, Paul, however, was born into his citizenship. Now, we don't know exactly how. Some people think that Paul's family, that Paul comes from a lineage of tent makers. Some believe that Paul's family was probably brought into the Roman world as slaves, but their tent making abilities were so great that the Roman armies realized these people could be incredible benefits to us, and so they grant them Roman citizenship so that they are more willing to make tents for the army as citizens than they would be as slaves. Now, that would have been Paul's parents or maybe even grandparents. So Paul is literally born into Roman citizenship. This morning, I want to ask you, what have you done to, to gain the citizenship of the kingdom of God? What have you paid? What bribe did you give? What amount of money did you write to your local church to become a citizen of the kingdom? The answer is you did it. Because you can't buy your way into the kingdom of God. The only way to come into the kingdom of God is to be born into it. And all of a sudden, here's Paul about to get beaten, and Jesus comes out. You've heard me say it before, and I will continue to say it because it is my all-time favorite quote of any man who was not Jesus Christ, Charles Spurgeon. And he says this, that as all roads lead to London, he was English, it makes sense in his case, as all roads lead to London, so all scripture leads to Christ. And here we are in this moment in which Paul is about to get his life beaten out of him, and this Jesus moment arrives. Now, Paul's definitely not planning on it. I don't think he had any clue that the Roman uh, officer over him was not a born Roman citizen, but it just so happened to play perfectly into the narrative. This guy says, I bought my way into citizenship, and Paul says, well, I was born into it. And being a citizen of the kingdom has its benefits. Jesus says this in John chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. I assure you that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Humans can re reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to the spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from, uh, comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of spirit. But look back at verse 5. I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Paul says, you might have bought your way into this kingdom, but I was born into this kingdom. I have the rights of this kingdom. I have the law of this kingdom because I am a part of this kingdom. And all of a sudden, the very protection 
that the Spirit of God gives to Paul all the way back in Acts chapter 13 as he's preparing to go to trial. You may not remember, but he's preparing to go to trial, and he, the Scripture says he has prepared his defense. But before he can even begin to speak, the leader of the Sanhedrin at the time, Gallio, steps up and speaks on his behalf and says, this man has not technically done anything wrong against our law. You have no reason to hold him. A few verses before that, the Spirit says, I will. I will protect you. I will defend you. And you will not have to utter your own defense. And here we are again. Paul's preparing to be ripped apart, literally flogged to death. And this moment of birthright comes into play. And so he saves himself because Paul is savvy. He knows the way the system works, and he uses it to his advantage. He recognizes an opportunity, and he jumps at it. And so this puts, this puts the commander in an unfortunate situation. Because try number one to gain information didn't work because the crowd was too confusing. Try number two didn't work because Paul was a Roman citizen. So he has a new plan. One that, again, you wouldn't expect a Roman official to utilize. He decides to take Paul to court, but not to a Roman court. He drops Paul off at the steps of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. He takes Paul to the very people who accused him of the wrongs the first time around and then couldn't agree on what wrong to actually accuse him of. Let me just tell you that the end of Acts is an incredible representation of, hum of humanity. We don't know what is right, and we don't know what is wrong. All we know is that if we look hard enough, we're going to find something that we don't like. And that's exactly what is happening in the life of Paul. And so, so, uh, so Lysesis takes Paul to the Sanhedrin and basically just drops him off to see what's going to happen. So let's pick up the story in Acts 22, verse 30, uh, verse 30. The next day, the commander ordered the leading priest into session with the Jewish high council. One thing that's interesting is the commander of Rome has zero authority over the Sanhedrin. Yet in this particular situation, he, make, he orders the Sanhedrin to convene, and they do it. That shows you the hatred that is against Paul right now. Not only does he have the uncertainty of the Roman government, I can't say that they hate him because they don't know what's going on, but they definitely don't like the fact that he's caused a disturbance, but he definitely has the hatred of the Jewish people against him. Whenever you have two different entities that normally don't intermingle very often and very well, deciding to join forces against you, this is going to become a problem. And unfortunately, it's not the first time that it has happened. Crucifixion of Jesus, ring any bells? This is a repetitive situation in which the world, quote-unquote, the Roman government, and religion, the brokenness of humanity, will combine to squash what, is, what they are unable to understand, the kingdom of God. When you introduce people to new things, that just don't make sense. 
that shake people, that move people, that make them uneasy or, un or uncertain, prepare to be confronted. Because people will become confrontational whenever you start messing with their level of comforts. People will dig in and fight back whenever you start to push them a little bit. And man, has it been ever present over these last few weeks, has it not? Let's see, let's see Paul's response. It's, it, this, this gets fun. The next day, the commander ordered the leading priest into session with the Jewish high council. He wanted to find out what the trouble was all about, so he released Paul to have him stand before them. This is try number three to gain understanding. Gazing intently at the high council, Paul began, Brothers, I have always lived before God with a clear conscience. Instantly, Ananias, the high priest, commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth. But Paul said to them, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. I sometimes wonder if that's the PG version. Anybody else? Like, you know, like we read it and we're like, well, it's in the Bible, so it's got to be, you know, it's got to be somewhat kid friendly. I, I know that Paul's a religious guy, but I also know that Paul is a human. And if somebody, if somebody in the middle of your defense, if somebody says, hey, sock this guy in the mouth, and you, don't, you can't do anything but just yell back, I don't really know if these, were, are the, like, these nice words are what Paul actually said. I'm not the only one that thinks this. There's a lot of theological, uh, the, theological people who think that like, if you really dive into the life of Paul, every once in a while, pre-road to Damascus, Paul comes out in the storyline. Right, like the guy, the guy who used to travel around murdering people, that, that punk of a dude, he, he kind of rears his head for a moment. Why? Because he's human. And this is a very human moment. Who he is is under attack, not by God, but by man. And the high priest, who, mind you, is breaking the law whenever he makes this claim. A Levitical law does not allow the high priest to order any sort of physical condemnation over someone at trial. That is in Leviticus. I think Leviticus 22. The high priest has limited powers, yet he oversteps the bounds in this moment. And so Paul, Paul in his own Christian right, takes a moment to correct the high priest of the Sanhedrin. And he calls him a hypocrite. Whew. This is the guy that humanity looks to as the mouthpiece of God. And Paul, in front of all of his buddies, calls him out for what he is. Now, historically, Ananias is not a good high priest. We know a lot about him. Josephus writes a lot about him in historical accounts. In fact, Ananias will is most likely the leading group of a group of Jewish assassins who will later on in Paul's life actually be, be the ones who kill Paul. This comment may be the thing that spurs that on. Ananias is very pro-Rome, not pro-kingdom. He was known to be a greedy high priest. He was known to twist the truth to make it look better for himself. And so in this moment, in this moment, Paul takes, it up, takes the opportunity 
to call out sin when he sees it. And so Ananias first instructs him to slap him in the face. And Paul responds, Paul responds, God, <laughs> can't even read it without, God will slap you, you hypocrite. And then something happens. Then something happens. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself, talking about Leviticus, by ordering me struck like that? And those standing near Paul lean in and say, do you dare insult God's high priest? Now there's two camps in this conversation. One of them is maybe Paul didn't actually know that he was the high priest at the time. Remember, this council meeting was called by a Roman commander, so maybe they didn't get dressed up in their royal garb and their cloaks and their chains and their jewelry that would normally distinguish who was in positions of authority in the midst of the Sanhedrin. It's, it's a plausible thought that Paul simply did not know that he was addressing the high priest in this way. That is a plausible thought. While I can, I can put one foot in that camp, the one that I like is sarcastic Paul. And I like sarcastic Paul because I can relate more with sarcastic Paul. I can very well see myself in the Sanhedrin and saying exactly what Paul said. God's going to, this is like, this is like the kind of argument my, my children throw around the house, right? I'm going to punch you in the face. Oh yeah, dad's going to punch you in the face. That's what's happening, right? It's this, it's this bickering, this banter. And as you look at it, this for such a serious situation as this, I kind of feel like Paul might just be, they're going to beat me anyway. Now's my chance to take my jab. I'm going to get flogged anyway. Now's my chance to at least call out the brokenness of the system. Now, I don't know which one is which. I don't know if he didn't know he was the high priest or if he did know he was the high priest. But what I do know is Paul recognizes, and pay attention because it's a message that I need for myself. Paul himself recognizes whenever he's overstepped. And he'll actually apologize. What I, what I want you to see is whether or not you recognize when you're wrong whether you intend to be wrong or not, doesn't change the fact that when you're wrong, you should offer an apology. Even though I think Paul, maybe it isn't correct, but I feel like he at least has a position to speak that way to the high priest. He still broke the law. And so Paul, verse 6, oh, verse 5, sorry, he says, I'm sorry, brothers. I didn't realize he was the high priest. Paul replied, For the scriptures say you must not speak evil to any of your rulers. So whether or not he knew what he was doing, when he is made aware of what he had done, he offers an apology and gains an understanding of the seriousness of the situation that he is in. But let's not miss the fact that Paul, in a moment of boldness, speaks an incredible truth over the brokenness that is the Sanhedrin at the time. That God will slap you in the mouth because of your hypocrisy. 
is a very prophetic message for what God has been doing to the Israelite people since the beginning of their journeys. But Paul realized that some of the members of the high council were Sadducees and some were Pharisees. So he shouted, brothers, I am a Pharisee and, and, and as were my ancestors. And I am on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Now this divided the council, the Pharisees against the Sadducees. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection or angels or spirits. But the Pharisees believe in all of these things. So there was a great uproar. Some of the teachers of religious law who are Pharisees jumped up and began to argue forcefully. We see nothing wrong with him. Talking about Paul. They shouted, perhaps a spirit or an angel spoke to him. And as the conflict grew more violent, the commander was afraid they would tear Paul apart. So he ordered his soldiers to go and rescue him by force and take him back to the fortress. All right, we're going to hold off on verse 11, Michael. So don't go there yet. So let's recap what just happened. The commander is looking for clarity into what's going on with Paul. So he can't get it by beating it out of him, so he's going to take him to the Sanhedrin to, have, to stand trial before the religious court. But while they're in trial, Paul takes the moment to confront the brokenness of the court, the hypocrisy in the court, and then, because Paul is savvy, he looks at the court and recognizes they're made up of two groups of people, distinct groups of people, who hinge on one main disagreement, resurrection. The Pharisees believed that resurrection would come for the, for, the, for the Israelite people, that hope would be restored in the Israelite people. They believed in that. They believed that resurrection was a real thing, that angels and spirits were a real thing. The Sadducees, however, rested only in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And, and they, they made arguments that re resurrection and angels and spirits were not found in those texts, so they did not believe in them. And man, this this thing that Paul brings up, not by accident, divides the court. And all of a sudden, he finds himself being defended by the very people who are supposed to be prosecuting him. It's amazing. If only I could have figured this out whenever I was a kid, and I could have used it against my parents. If only, right? I wasn't that smart. But Paul was. And lo and behold, the argument between the two groups erupts again. And guess where the commander finds himself? Still with no answer, and back to rescuing Paul. This is bizarre, man. And then we see something. It's what I want to leave you with this morning. Verse 11, a character makes an appearance. One who has been in the story the entire time as a silent standby. But then... Jesus speaks. That night, the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. Be encouraged. After everything that's just happened, after being threatened to be beaten, 
after being dragged into a religious court, after being condemned by the high priest, after, being, after dividing the Sanhedrin, one group loving you, one group hating you, after all of this, Jesus shows up. And the first thing that he says is, Paul, be encouraged, man. I know that it's rough. I know it's been hard. But be encouraged because you are doing a good thing and you will even bring the good news even to the Roman people as well. I want to leave you with a game to help you remember this story because I think that the times that we are living in right now, you can pull incredible wisdom out of this text. How many of you grew up playing the game rock, paper, scissors? Rock, paper, scissors, right? This is what I want you to remember. Before Paul was getting flogged, before he was uh, going to be flogged, he, he acknowledged his citizenship, his papers. I want you to remember who you're a citizen of, the kingdom in which you belong to. I want you to remember your papers this morning because the kingdom of God is yours. That is the place of your residency. That is where you pull your strength, your life, your grace, and your mercy. It's the kingdom of God. That is who you belong to. Secondly, I want you to remember the rock. That when confronted with conflict, when confronted with hypocrisy, that we are the people who are called to stand up in the face of injustice. Paul gets threatened to be slapped, and he throws that rock right back at that high priest. God will slap you in the mouth. That's the rock. And lastly, the scissors. A world, a world divided cannot stand. Paul divides the Sanhedrin on a crutch matter of resurrection. And in dividing the Sanhedrin, he exposes the truth of which he is. He is the one who Jesus stands with. And even in the midst of the conflict, through rock, paper, and scissors, Paul succeeds. And it may not look like it yet, he's not free. He's still bound, but Paul succeeds in this one thing, I believe at least. I believe that Paul is succeeding at awakening Rome to the reality that while on the books, their kingdom might be the one that rules, in reality, the kingdom of God is the only kingdom that will stand forever. Let me pray over us as we close out. God, we thank you. We thank you for the story of Paul. We thank you for his words, for the life that he lived, for the example that he set for us. And God, as we've looked at this life that he's lived in this season of trial, God, I could pull so much out that, is, that, that applies directly to where we are today as your church. So God, I pray that you would embolden us. I pray that you would equip us. I pray that you would empower us to be kingdom-minded people, that we would claim the name of Jesus boldly, that we would recognize that as citizens of the kingdom of God, we have rights, and they're bold rights, the right to be hospitable, to be gracious, to be merciful, and to be the symbol of love in the midst of broken communities. God, I pray that you would lead us in the opportunities to speak, that you would lead us in the opportunities to defend, to defend. God, that you would lead us as we seek to bring down the kingdom of man and raise up the kingdom of God. God, may it come here on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen. We're glad you're here this morning. Have an incredible week. Please be watching social media, your, uh, your email, um, your phones, your mailboxes as we continue to evaluate the situation uh, throughout the week. But we do plan on being still one service next week at 10 o'clock. We will let you know if anything changes between now and then. All right? Have an incredible week. Go be the church. God bless.